Jesus, when he taught, went straight to the point. Now, he spoke in parables, sometimes to hide what he was trying to say from the religious leaders to see if they were really searching and sensing that God was in their midst. Sometimes to make them come out and ask questions. But if you look at the ministry of Jesus, he has the same ministry John the Baptist had. John the Baptist was the forerunner. The message of John the Baptist to religious people was repent. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Do, do you realize that there's not one prophet in the Bible and there's not one leader, apostle in the New Testament or Jesus that ever said, think about it and get back to me. It was a call for an immediate response. Jesus expected people to respond to him because he was God speaking to man. And he was God revealed to man. And for the most part, the people that should have responded the quickest, the scribes and the Pharisees, were the last to respond. And if they did respond, they often responded with antagonism and hatred and resentment. Now, here's what I know. No preacher worth their salt will, should ever just tell you what you want to hear. I don't want my doctor to just tell me what I want to hear. I, I don't want anybody that's got any influence and authority to tell me what I want to hear. I want to hear the truth, even if it hurts. And Jesus spoke truth. It didn't always make people comfortable. He, he said in one place he did not come to bring peace but a sword. Billy Sunday was asked one time, it was actually somebody came up to him and complained about his meetings and said, you know, uh, Billy Sunday, you rub people the wrong way. And he said, tell them to turn around. <laughs> you know, sometimes preaching can rub us the wrong way. But what it means when it rubs us the wrong way, if it's preaching in the, of the Word, in the Word, and in the power of the Spirit, it, it should rub something in us the wrong way of God correcting us and telling us how He wants us to live. Luke chapter 13, Luke 13 and verse 1. Now on the same occasion, this is the occasion following chapter 12 where He's called the religious leaders hypocrites. On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent. So these people that brought up this issue to Jesus, he says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he brings up a situation that they didn't mention. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Israel? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's talk about the deception of hypocrisy. Jesus called the religious leaders of his day 
hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said of them on one occasion, you're of your father the devil. Now, I mean, as much trouble as they went to strut and put on their outfits and, and, and have all their little tassels in the right place and, and raise their hand on every Bible trivia question, as much as they did that, Jesus said, if you look to the father and you look to them, they're hypocrites because the father, that's not the way the father acts. That's not what the father does. They treat people the way the Father doesn't treat people. And so there's always this tension between the Pharisees who had been blessed, the, the Levites, the scribes who had been blessed, and Jesus who said, you're not living up to what God has given you. There's nothing politically correct about what Jesus did. He would not have a successful TV ministry. Jesus is not being mean-spirited. People want Jesus to just be this nice little kind guy that walks around and, like, and sings San Francisco. Be sure to wear the flowers in your hair. And uh, that's not him. He's not being mean-spirited. He's calling for self-examination. When Jesus speaks about hypocrites, he's not on a rant. He's calling for our lives to align to truth. And so he's opposed to anything, anything that offered a false idea about truth and the way to God. You want to know what causes Jesus to get the hair on the back of his neck to stand up? It is anything that gives a false idea about truth and the way to God. Now, our tendency is kind of like the Pharisees. We're doing so many good works, God owes us. Our tendency is also to think I'm better than other people. I mean, you can drive down the streets of Albany or, or Leesburg or anywhere. You can drive down the streets and look over at people and say, I'll tell you what, I'm so much better than those people. And you do, you've done it. You've done it. You, you do it every time you, you, somebody does something in a car around you that you've also done, but in that moment, you say, they are so wrong. I hope there's a police officer somewhere. <laughs> we tend to want mercy for ourselves and judgment for others. That is human nature. We want mercy. God be merciful to me. But all those other people out there, sick them. Just go after them. Tear them apart. So Luke 13, Jesus is flatly rejecting their interpretation of current events. Things that were they were reading about in the Jerusalem newspaper, I guess. Here, here's what they're doing to Jesus. He's been talking about hypocrites. They're looking for a window and an opportunity to ask him a question. And what they're saying is, I, I may have sin in my life, but I am not as bad as those folks that Pilate killed. I bet he killed him because he had a reason to kill him. I'm not as bad as those people. Those Galileans must have gotten what they deserved. I deserve mercy. Everybody else deserves judgment. But Jesus says twice, no, unless you repent. Now, the word repent is used 164 times in the Old Testament. To five of the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus says, repent or else. So repentance is a biblical word. It's an accurate word. It's a strong word. It's a word that demands a decision. It is not a word of consideration. 
It is a word that demands an adjustment. It demands a change of direction. And so when he says repent, it's intellectual, but it's also volitional. I choose to repent because God calls me to repentance. So here we are, chapter 13, chapter 12. He's talked about the hypocrites and judgment. And so somebody asks this question, what about those Galileans? Were they hypocrites? Is that why Pilate, when they were offering their sacrifices, they must have been hypocrites in the way they were worshiping, and that's why Pilate mixed their blood. Well, Pilate was no God worshiper. He just killed at random. And Jesus answers their question with a question. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. Sometimes he never answers a question. He just asks another question. He said, well, what about those 18 that died that the tower fell on? They were innocent people, construction workers, or around the area, the tower fell, they were minding their own business, and catastrophe struck them. What about them? Well, they didn't have any answer for that. And Jesus hears their question and realizes that their minds are going straight back to the Galileans, and he says, no, unless you repent. Unless you repent. The need for repentance is universal. Every one of us has to repent to get to God. It's not remorse. It's not, I'm really sorry. It's repentance. See, God requires repentance. It's, this is not, hey, hey, man, you know what? I messed up. Hardest three words to say in the English language, I have sinned and until we call sin what God calls it we're not repenting and if we're asking God to grade on a curve if we're asking God to ignore ours while judging everybody else's we're in trouble he says no unless you repent verse 4 do you suppose that they were worse culprits that they were greater debtors that they were more guilty than other people. So, so what does deserve the judgment of God and what position are we in and how are we responding to the position that we're in? So he tells a parable. The deception of appearances beginning in verse 6. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered, that's the vineyard keeper, and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now, let's get the characters of this parable. The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard where it is planted is Israel, where this fig tree is planted. The vine dresser, the vine keeper, is Jesus. So this is a parable directed at Israel. I've come looking for fruit. I've come looking for my covenant people to do what I put them on this earth to do, and that was to spread the good news of a covenant relationship of an unworthy people that God chose out of nobody 
and made his own. And God says, I've come looking for fruit, and I'm not finding any. He found a lot of religion. And by all accounts, this tree was blessed. And even though Israel was in captivity, Israel had been blessed. They had been delivered from bondage over and over again. They'd been delivered from captivity. God had intervened for them. God had done miracles for them. And they didn't live up to their purpose. But isn't that true of the church? That we don't always live up to our purpose? Are we not guilty of the same thing when the Father comes to us and says, let me see some fruit? And we all of a sudden say, well, what about that other church down the street? I hear they hadn't baptized anybody in forever. Sherwood, let me see some fruit. I'm coming to inspect. By the way, Jesus is always inspecting his church. He's been doing it ever since he went to heaven. Jesus confronts the sin of taking up space, of taking in and never giving back in return. He confronts the sin of taking up space, taking in, receiving, 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 and never giving anything back in return. You know what that is? That's a presumption on the grace of God that I deserve to get all of this, that I deserve to have all these blessings. <clears throat> so whose fig tree is it? It's the Lord's, the man who owned the vineyard <clears throat> and the man who had expectations after all the attention that this fig tree had been given. What's a fig tree supposed to do? Bear figs. Really good, class. <laughs> uh, Fig tree is supposed to bear figs. Christian is supposed to bear fruit. The Bible says that there's the fruit of souls. The Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. We're supposed to bear fruit in likeness to God. And so God comes looking, this man comes looking for this fruit tree to produce fruit, and there is none. Now, three years is about how long it would take for a planted fig tree to come up from the ground and begin to produce figs. So God is not coming at an unreasonable time, in an unreasonable way. He says, three years, time to start eating some figs off that fig tree. Here's the important hook. Fruit is the outward expression of our inner nature. It's the outward expression of our inner nature. It is in keeping with repentance. If I say I'm a Christian, then there should be fruit in keeping with repentance and in keeping with a new nature. God did not go to the fig tree and look for an apple. He didn't go to the fig tree and look for pears or peaches. He went to the fig tree looking for figs and he didn't find any, and so he says, cut it down, get rid of it. Boy, that seems harsh. But it's not harsh to come expecting what something has the nature to do. And we have been given the nature of God by the Holy Spirit living within us. And it's not unreasonable for God to look at every one of us individually and then this church collectively and say, I'm looking for fruit in keeping with the nature of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what I'm looking for. God is not being unreasonable to expect a Christian to act like a Christian. That's not being unreasonable. But the sad thing is, in America, we live in such a watered-down so-called Christianity that when somebody acts like a Christian, we think they're a fanatic. This is not a wild fig tree. It, it, the vineyard keeper had every right to expect it because it's got a privileged position. It's in a vineyard. It's not growing along the side of the road. It's been blessed with opportunities. It's been fertilized. It's been developed. And you know, God has a right to expect something from anything he puts an investment in. If he invests in us, he expects a return on his investment. And it should not surprise him when we have a return on the investments that he has made in us. God expects more, and I think he has a right to. I tell you, nearly 30 years of pastoring this church, there has not been much that God has withheld from us. We have been blessed, 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 and blessed. I mean, we, 30 years, we've, we've never had a church fight. We've had some people leave, but we've never had a church fight. We've never had a, a bad business meeting. If you think about starting one, I can tell you someplace else you can go. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we've made a lot of changes, a lot of things happen, and God has blessed. We've averaged almost 100 baptisms every year for 30 years. In South Georgia, with a declining population, that's a work of God. We've seen revival where these altars have been filled, where the people have been backed up into the aisles. That's a work of God. There are pastors that have preached for 30 years and never seen one person walk an aisle. But I want to tell you, you're in a church that is blessed and God is expecting a return on the blessings that he's poured out on us. He's not just saying, well, I'm just going to keep pouring it out whether they offend me or not. We're not to sit on our blessings. I mean... I'm coming up on 30 years here, but I want to tell you something. I am not planning on spending the rest of my life saying, let's just talk about the good old days. Oh, the good old days when things were easier. No, 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 no. We should not sit on our blessings, nor should we squander our blessings. We should take our blessings and say, God, how can you use this in and through my life because you've given me privileges and I know you expect something from me. Here's, here's what I know. It's going to be easier on churches that don't believe the inerrant word of God than it is on us. It's going to be easier on dead churches that fuss and fight than it is on us. You say, well, how, how do you say that? Because, the, the, well, they haven't been blessed like we've been blessed. Listen, if, if some of those churches that don't believe the, the Word of God that are liberal and trying to figure out how liberal they can be, if some of them heard the kind of preaching we've heard in this church from this pulpit, from all the guests that have been here, they would have repented decades ago. Decades ago. But we can sit under it fill in our notes, and go home and not change. 
It'll be easier for them than us because the Bible talks about we are held accountable for what we have and for what God has given us. You say, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Let's talk about Moses for a minute, just real quick. You would think that after a guy did all he did to get a million and a half Baptists out of Egypt, walk around with them complaining and whining and belly aching for 40 years, you would think God would have built a private bridge and given him a chariot and let Moses ride into the promised land and say, that's my boy. Moses died on the wrong side of the river. You know why? He lost his temper. He did something God told him he wasn't supposed to. He lost his temper. By the way, do you know that your temper is the only thing that you lose and you keep? Well, I just lost my temper. Oh, it's going to come back again. We know. We know. We know how your temper is. Well, I just lost it. You'll find it again. We know. Moses died on the wrong side of the river. Why? Because Moses was held to a higher standard. All those people out there that were walking around and wondering and complaining, they had not seen Moses and God face to face. They had not seen the back of the glory of God. It is not said of them that God spoke to them as God speaks to a friend, but that's what he did with Moses. God expected more out of Moses. God expects more out of me because... You know, I could be pastoring some dead church on some dead road somewhere with nobody but cemeteries behind the church, and that'd be all I'd be doing. I, I'm blessed, and I don't deserve it, but I want to make sure that I respond to the blessings that God is giving me accordingly. He was planted in his vineyard. He comes looking for fruit. This fig tree had every opportunity to be what it was created to be, Here's the sin of the fig tree. Enjoying the privileges without accepting the responsibilities. Now, I'm like the old Scottish farmer. I would not harm thee for the world, but I'm about to shoot where thou standeth. Enjoying the privileges without accepting the responsibilities. Anybody in this room, you come here, you sit here, you go here, your kids are being ministered to, your children are being, your babies are having their diapers changed right now, uh, you're visited in the hospital, you're loved on, you get people that pray for you. What would your checkbook say about how much you have responded to the responsibilities of being a member of a church. What would your serving say? What would your worship say about how you're responding to the blessings and the privileges? How responsible are we in what we do, what we give, how we serve, and how we live based on all the things that God has done for us? Look at it. Three years. Three years, the time it takes for a fig tree to bear fruit. The test of repentance is fruit. Uselessness invites disaster. 
Why does it even use up the ground? What the Father is saying is, is if this tree is just going to sit soaking sour, let's pull it up and put something better in its place. Let's get this off the ground. This is valuable ground. Let's, let's get this off the ground. God has invested his best, and he expects a return on his investment. I, I've seen this happen with churches. I've seen this happen with individuals where they were once great, and now you go, what in the world happened? I mean, my home church had a serious taste and touch of the Jesus movement and of revival and hundreds and hundreds of young people praying and witnessing. A couple of years ago, they sold to another church because they were down to about 15 people in a church that seats a 1,000. By the way, I can take you to at least five like that within 20 miles of Sherwood. They got room for hundreds of people, but nobody's coming. But they'll have homecoming dinner, and everybody will bring the fried chicken and the corn on the cob and the apple pie, and they'll all sit around at the table singing kumbaya. Oh, for the days when it was like it used to be, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know why churches die? They don't repent. Churches that don't repent don't deserve the presence of God in power, the manifest presence of God in power. So let's look at the consequences. Verse 3, unless you repent, that's a present imperative in verse 3, which means continuous, to live a life of repentance, quick to repent, quick to say, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm changing. Verse 4, unless you repent, is not a present imperative, it's an aorist, single decisive once for all act. You need to repent and make it a repentance that puts you on a different path. So repentance is a mind matter. I have to admit I'm wrong. It's an emotional matter. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. It's a matter of the will. There's a change of direction. Two times the owner says, cut it down. That's an aorist tense, and it means one swift action. But in the declaration of a coming judgment on this tree, there is grace. The vineyard keeper said, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. Remember, the vineyard keeper is Jesus, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to give this church or I'm going to give this individual believer some attention. I'm going to dig around it. Digging around it is uncomfortable. I'm going to fertilize it. That's giving you every opportunity to grow. But if I don't see fruit next year, he says to the Father, you won't have to cut it down. I will. And Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, they don't understand it at the moment. We do. I'm headed toward a cross, and you either accept me as the Messiah, and you give your life to me like these uneducated fishermen are. You either lay aside your pride and give your heart to me, or I'm going to cut you down, and he did. He cut down the religious system of Israel. He cut down the temple, and there is no sacrificial system in Israel anymore. Don't you think God's not true to his word? 
When Jesus says, I'm going to give you time, Romans 2, 4 says, the goodness of God leads to repentance. The vineyard keeper says, leave it another year, just one more year, give it another year. Acts 17, 30 says, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. You see, repentance is an initial decision, but it's a continual decision with continual results. We repent once to be saved, but we repent over and over for our sanctification so that walls don't build up between us and the Father, so that, so that there's not a barrier between us and our praying. So let me give you four truths to remember or consider. You and I are in a privileged position as an American, especially, as a Christian, it's all about the unmerited grace of God. Two hundred and forty-five million people right now, today, in this moment, while we sit in a blessed position, are being persecuted and hundreds will be killed today. It's the unmerited grace of God. You didn't deserve anything. You say, well, I'm glad I'm not like you. You had nothing to do with what you looked like when you were born, what color you were when you were born, or where you were born. You had nothing to do with that. And if you're here in a blessed position, that's the grace of God. It says it was planted in his vineyard, watched over, cared for. The tree was provided every opportunity, but it was an unfruitful investment squandered the opportunities. The Bible says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what we've done in the body. Secondly, you and I will be judged based on the privileges we've received. Two times, he says, cut it down. The wishes of the owner were reasonable. He was not being unfair. Cut it down. Because of the privileges we've received, you and I have received so many privileges that we can't count. That's why it'll take an eternity for us to thank God for what he's done for us. We won't get there and go, hey, you know, I'm through. I had about five things I was grateful for. You know, Johnny Hunt and, and, and I and H.B. Charles were preaching in uh, Florida a, a week ago, and, and Johnny uh, made some funny statements, and some of them I've heard before, like you've heard some of my statements before. Um, and um, he talked about, he said, you know, he said, you can go from earth to heaven, but you can't go from hell to heaven. We'd be given a privilege to witness and some of the people that are our ones, they're not going to get to heaven from hell. If they're going to get saved, it's going to be in this life. It's going to be in this life. Because of the privileges that we've received, all these blessings, all these privileges, all these things that God has done for us that sometimes we just take for granted the owner felt he'd done everything necessary. The land was valuable, and he said, I, I can prune this or pull it out and do something that will be more productive. Thirdly, the unrepentant will have no right to point fingers at God. 
And what's interesting in this parable is the owner, the father, argues from logic, from the logic of righteousness. The father is holy. Remember, there's a veil. No one could look on him. The father is holy. So the father argues, the owner argues from the logic of righteousness, but the vineyard keeper reasons from the logic of mercy. This is not two different pictures of God. It is God the Father who has every right to send every person to hell and nobody could complain. And God the Son saying, I came so you don't have to go to hell. I came so that you could have life, and not just life, but you could have it abundantly. And I am God's mercy that covers God's judgment. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can do that. I'll dig around it. I'm going to get up close and personal. I'm going to shake it up. I'm going to give it my undivided attention. And when I get through with my work, there will be no doubt what should be done with that fig tree. Number four, God always, always warns before he judges. Three years. That's a sufficient amount of time, but look at what Jesus did. Jesus gets to this parable, and the vineyard keeper says, give me one more year. One more year. So I want to ask you a very sobering question before you see the last quote come up on the screen. If God told you today, right now, if God told you today, you've got one more year to get it right. What would you change in your life in this next year? But some of us have been sitting in this room and God's been working and he's been digging, he's been pruning, he's been... He's been fertilizing. He's been speaking into our lives, and we just keep ignoring it and ignoring it. And in the background, we say, boy, God just doesn't speak to me like he used to. He's getting further and further away. And one day, you'll say, I'm just, I, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to obey. That's just Michael Kett's opinion about what we ought to do with serving and giving and everything else. I don't have to do what he says. No, but you better do what God says. I'm not the one digging and pruning. That's the Holy Spirit. You better do what God says. Oswald Chambers said, if I'm going to know who Jesus is, I must obey him. The majority of us don't know Jesus because we haven't the remotest intention of obeying him. If I'm going to know Jesus, I must obey him. But the majority don't have any intention of obeying him. So we don't know him let's stand together heads are bowed and eyes are closed I want to ask you this morning I'm not asking you if you're a Sherwood member I'm not asking you if you've been baptized I'm not asking you if you're a giver I'm not asking you if you're a connect group leader I'm not asking you if you're a volunteer I'm asking you a simple question have you Come to Jesus in repentance for salvation. Do you know that there's a moment in your life when you gave your heart to Jesus? You said, God, I'm a sinner 
in need of a Savior. And I know that the only way I can be saved is through the blood of Jesus. That if you have not done that, and if you've argued for your good works, then today is the day of salvation. I remember sitting in my office with two ladies in their 80s in Ada, Oklahoma. And they came to see me and they said uh, they wanted to talk to me about their salvation. I said, well, tell me about when you were saved. So, oh, uh, Brother C.C. Morris baptized us. They're both in their 80s. I said, did you know Christ then? said, no, no, but it, we, he baptized us. I said, so when did you come to Christ? I said, well, we've been members of First Ada ever since. I said, but when did you give your heart to Jesus? I said, well, you know, we're, we're very active. I mean, both of them, they're just, they're, they came to tag team. You know, we're very active. I mean, I don't hardly miss a Sunday in my Sunday school class. And I pulled my chair up close to those ladies that were old enough to be my great-grandparents and said, ladies, if you don't give your heart to Jesus, you will be turned away at the door of heaven because membership in First Baptist Ada and being baptized by C.C. Morris will not get you in the door. And this is what they both said. We can't do that because what would our friends think? Ladies and gentlemen, if those two ladies didn't repent, they were active in church for over 60 years and they're both in hell today because they were worried about what other people would think. God tended, God nurtured, God pruned, God provided, God blessed, and they said, but I don't want to do what God says. So you may need to come to be saved today or you may need to come to this altar and say, you know, the Lord has been pruning me and he's been digging around me and he's been fertilizing me and I need to publicly get on my knees before God and say, God, I repent of taking my salvation casually. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You don't need to be worrying about what anybody else is doing. You're the fig tree today. Every seat, every person, you're the fig tree. And you have to do what God has told you to do today. So as they sing, I'm going to ask you to step out. You can slide out into the aisles and our men will meet you there. You can come to this altar and you can get on your knees and say, God, as a Christian, I am not living the way I need to live. So as they sing, you step out and you come right now.